Welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys, a former D1 Hooper and high school coach, current teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Omari Sanko for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. And of course, we're always blessed to be joined by our producer, Wes Davenport, who's kind of doing some of his own Detroit Pistons talks. Join him and Jack Kelly every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern over at the Detroit Bad Boys YouTube. Omari, why don't you let all the fans know on the Tankathon spin that you just dropped here on Sunday morning? Yeah, I tweeted the other week. I'm not doing Tankathon spins this offseason just because it's going to be a pick between one and five. I don't care how many times you spin it. It's, you know, it's going to be a whole number between one, one and five. I don't want to get people amped up or disappointed or whatever, but I'm about to actually do the latter now because uh, I just did a spin that had Washington with the first pick, uh, New Orleans with the fourth pick, and I think Portland jumped up to the second overall pick. I thought you said, uh, da- I think it was Dallas jumped up to number Dallas. two. It was Dallas number two. I spun it. I spun it twice after that just to see what the result would be. Detroit ended up with the fifth pick all three times. Oh, so Marty. Your, there's your uh, offseason hope uh, on this on this Tuesday morning. You're listening to the the uh, pod. But I said it a few weeks ago. I said this is going to be a weird draft where like the seventh team jumps up to number one, the eighth jumps up to two or something. Uh, New Orleans in the I think the tenth spot jumped up to uh, three and bypassed Houston. So so we'll see. We'll see. I don't want to put too much uh, bad juju into the air, but there's like a 48% chance they, they pick number five. So just prepare yourselves for that. We just lost any chance of the Pistons Pulse uh, representing the Detroit Pistons at the lottery on <laughs> what, whatever day that is. But today we are full Detroit Pistons draft. We are going to talk the top of the draft. One, two, three, four, and five. Amari just laid it out. There is almost a 50% chance the Pistons draft at five. So we have a guest to come on top. Who, who would be the best choice there for the Pistons? But we're going to go deeper into the draft because that's what this guy does. We're going to talk second round picks. If Troy Weaver traded back into the late in the first round, gets another second round, maybe even undrafted free agents. I don't know what we'll do. This guy has like 300 prospects on his big board. We can talk about anybody you guys want. It is no ceilings finest. Finally, after how many ever episodes we've recorded, I get this guy on the podcast. Good friend of mine. We've come to, he's a father of more kids than me, even. Stephen Gillespie, welcome to the Pistons Pulse. Thank you for getting up Sunday morning and recording with us. Welcome to the podcast. Bryce, Amari, Westman, I appreciate y'all having me. Uh, big fan of everything that you guys are doing. Uh, Omari, I've shared this with Bryce before. I actually, when I first started getting into basketball, I watched the Pistons a good bit because y'all had Big Nasty on the team. I'm from Arkansas originally, so seeing Corliss Williamson on the squad, it, it uh, kind of ingratiated me into being a little bit of a Pistons fan. So uh, always happy to come on and talk Pistons basketball and especially the draft. So thank y'all for having me. Corliss Williamson is a legend up here in Detroit. I'm Detroit born, uh, you know, born in raids. So, you know, it's, it's funny when people talk about the Pistons, I got them into basketball. Corliss Williams, that's not one you hear as often, <laughs> uh, you know, but he was. Well, I'm from, um, I'm from Russellville, Arkansas originally. And that's where he's, that's where he played his high school ball. So, you know, it's a little bit deep rooted interest in my part. There you go. He's one of the Pistons that don't, I feel like we don't talk about him as, as much. We should, because he was, Definitely key to those things back in the day. All right, let's get into this. Let's talk about a couple Pistons that were key to this season, Stephen. And as a draft guy, again, we know you can't watch 82 games of Detroit Pistons basketball like Omari and I. (laughs) You're a sickle when it comes to the draft. Omari and I are sickles when it comes to the Detroit Pistons. But you scouted Jay Nivey and Jalen Duran. So we do want to ask you just a couple questions, maybe one on each of those guys. Jay Nivey, let's start with him. 
he had a season where he was actually pretty good from the mid-range and pretty good creating for his teammates, Steven. Can you speak to, was that part of his game coming out of college? Did you think that that would be something you would hear at the end of his rookie season? This is something Jay Nivey did really well. Yeah, so I think a, a lot of it had to do with the necessity of it, right? With Cade going down and they had a, another guard on their team that they invested a lot of uh, draft stock and equity in. And to be frank, Ivy as a playmaker wasn't something that I was ready for watching in the NBA in year one. I thought that was going to be something that he kind of had to grow into over a couple seasons. I thought he would be a dynamic scorer, uh, incredible speed, burst, athleticism, strength for his size and position. I thought the scoring was going to be kind of like the forefront of it. But seeing the playmaking take a step and a leap, I think that was, you know, something incredible to see. And that speaks to his trajectory over the next several seasons. And as far as the mid-range game, I mean, he turned into a pretty reliable three-point shooter at the college level. And sometimes you worry about how that three-point shot translates up on a bigger, wider court. But I mean, for him to be a good college three-point shooter, it it makes a lot of sense why he would be a good mid-range shooter in the NBA as well because of how spaced out the floor is. You know, I think me and Bryce were both, uh, you know, like I wouldn't say surprised, but, you know, I don't know if we expected the shooting growth to come as quickly as it uh, did. Where We would even see him open a lot of games by just taking a couple of three-pointers pretty early in the first quarter just to see if if they would fall. And a lot of times they they did fall, and that kind of opened up the rest of his – game especially down the uh, stretch there uh, we were also impressed by his playmaking i think he dished almost two assists for every turnover uh, really after the calendar turn in 2023 uh steven you know there's a lot of debate about him being a primary point guard and more of a, a off-ball guy i guess coming into his rookie season uh where'd you see him kind of falling on that spectrum because toward the end i think he really did uh, prove a lot of doubt is wrong that he can be a league guy yeah, and it's funny too because we have a history of these like kind of athlete combo guards come in, and there's always the um, the preconceived notion, Amari, that they're going to be tremendous scores, but we don't ever really project them as as ball handlers. I mean, look at what Russell Westbrook is still doing right now, and when he came out of UCLA, he was one of these guys that was a supreme like top tier athlete and was more of like an off guard than he was like a uh, you know a facilitator. But over the years, I mean, he ended up averaging triple doubles. I'm not saying that Jay Nivey's going to do anything like that, but sometimes I think that we see these athletes come in and how bursty and stuff they are. I think that sometimes we kind of knock them down a little bit in terms of how they process the game. And I think that Ivy is one of those guys that kind of fell victim to that a little bit. But if you look at the growth that he had between his freshman and sophomore season, I mean, playmaking goes up, shooting goes up, you know, efficiency goes up all good things and there's people that were interested in him as a freshman but he kind of went back and bet on himself to improve his draft stock and and right now the pistons are kind of yielding the the fruits of his labor on that aspect other rookie this year was jalen duran troy weaver traded back into the lottery drafted as we talk about the youngest player in the nba i think i we said a few weeks ago we weren't going to say this anymore and of course we keep saying it <laughs> i was i always say i was lower on people coming into the season as his rookie impact, but super high on his ceiling. I ended up wrong. He had an incredible rookie impact, probably going to be second team all rookie or close to it. Omari told me from you know the beginning, like he's not going to go play in the G League. I thought he would. He had a really good season finishing around the basket, offensive rebounding, those type of things. Showcase some of the skill level, Steven. Let's just get your initial scouting report on Jalen Dern. Who did you think this kid was 
coming into his rookie season, um, regardless of what we ended up seeing this year. So during the whole draft cycle, I mocked him. I think the highest I ever mocked him was fifth to a team, and I think it was the Oklahoma City Thunder um, because they fell a little bit in the, the tankathon sense, as you guys know how that goes sometimes. But um, I loved Duran. I, I absolutely loved him. I thought that just scouting him at Memphis, that team was not built for him to succeed, but he kind of did it in spite of it anyway, right? Um, incredible physical athlete, very tough, NBA-ready, day-one type of player. Um, sets really good screens, rebounds, competes on the glass, but... Bryce, I'll talk to you about this. What really stood out to me was the potential of him as a playmaker out of the post and out of the short roll. I mean, the way that this guy can see the floor. And again, kind of going back to what we were talking about with Ivy, sometimes we look at these big men and we see how physically imposing they are. And sometimes we kind of discredit the way that they process and their natural feel for the game. Ivy was like that. Duran is just like that too. Like, I think that, he was slept on in terms of being able to see the floor. And he did show flashes of that for Detroit in the few games that I did watch. Like for being as young as he is and as physically built as he is, I think we would look at, you know, sometimes how immature these young guys can be and think that they only want to play to, you know, just kind of brutish basketball. But he he sees the floor incredibly well. And I think that that's going to be a huge piece for you guys building uh, this team moving forward. Steven, how much did his youth kind of factor into your high evaluation for him. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, Bryce just mentioned that he's youngest player in the NBA, of course, but, you know, for him to kind of flash what he was able to show that young, I mean, he's going to be younger than a lot of the players to this upcoming lottery. Uh, just how much did that maybe bump the evaluation up for you versus maybe if you were uh, 19 turning 20 this season? Yeah, so Amari, I'm not really what I would call an ageist. I don't really... I was really, going to yeah. say, this is the wrong guy yeah. for this guy. I'm just going to do a No Ceilings episode. That makes him the right guy for it. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I'm not really an ageist dude. I don't really think like, okay, because the dude is 19, he's going to be better than a 23-year-old. Like sometimes like, we we saw it this year with how Keegan Murray played, you know, compared to some of the other younger talent. Now, what's interesting about how the way I process the age thing is like, if you get these dudes too young, you're going to have like a lot of money invested in them for a lot longer you know, and it's going to take them sometimes a lot longer to reach their prime. So that kind of weighs into my evaluation a little bit. But the youth actually helps Duran in this aspect because of how mature that he was at his position and how well he saw the floor and just like, okay, this is where this dude is year one in D1 basketball. And he has such a natural feel for the game and he's tough as all get out. He's only going to get stronger as he gets older and he's only going to get better at feeling out the game as he gets older and, and starts, you know, understanding the speed of the game and like the tendencies of its teammates and, you know, whatever the coaching staff looks like moving forward, he'll be able to help execute a game plan too. So it's one of those weird situations, Bryce, where the age actually does the play a little bit into the account, but it, it wasn't like the, the end all be all. Let's get into this year's draft, Stephen. This is what we're here for. We're going to start at the top. And then, like I say, then we'll, we'll dive really deep into it a little bit later. Unless you have a surprise for us, we're going to skip over number one. I assume Victor is number <laughs> one for you if the Pistons land there. Yes. Yeah, I held out um, for a little while with uh, Scoot being my number one guy coming into the year, but it didn't take long for Victor Women Yama to, to reign supreme in that front. So we're going to go through a couple scenarios, um, four to be exact. 
Pistons land at number two. This is a big conversation right now. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> not even just Pistons fans. Like in general, this has become a big conversation in the draft community. So we're going to start there. Detroit lands number two. Are they taking Scoot Henderson or are they taking Brandon Miller if Stephen Gillespie is giving his recommendation to GM Troy Weaver? If I'm giving recommendations, I'm taking Scoot Henderson. Now that's I it's it wouldn't be a podcast, it wouldn't be a social media conversation if I didn't say this is not a knock against Brandon Miller. Like he's gonna be a fine player, right? Like this is no way slandering, hating, discrediting any of that. I just really believe in what Scoot Henderson brings to the table because he's playing a lot longer of a season than Brandon Miller. I mean, if you look at the G League schedule compared to the college basketball schedule, the consistency that Scoot brings to the table, uh, I understand that there's this notion out there that you can find a 6'2 guard anywhere. I get that, but you can't find the right 6'2 guard anywhere, right? Like if we look at all these, the, the NBA is like in this phase of jumbo initiators, jumbo playmakers. There's still a lot of under 6'5 talent representing the point guard spot with Steph Curry, Damian Lillard, Jalen Brunson, uh, De'Aaron Fox, you know, Chris Paul, I can go on and on, Trey Young, whoever. There's a lot of shorter guards that still find a way to be threats in the NBA. And what really helps you do that at his size is the strength. You have to have the positional strength to succeed if you're going to be one of these under 6'5 guards. And that's what Scoot Henderson has. He's very strong, very bursty, very athletic. And again, one of these athletes that also processes the game incredibly well, he'll have plays where he looks like, you know, college Derrick Rose or college uh, Russell Westbrook. But then he'll have plays where he looks like Steve Nash or Chris Paul throwing incredible passes, dribbling underneath the basket and prolonging the possession to get other players open and things of that nature. So I really like him. Now, the fit for Detroit will be interesting, right? Because you have Cade and you have Ivy. I think Ivy could naturally play off ball. And then one thing that we've noticed in the NBA, one of these trends is you you can never go wrong with having multiple ball handlers, right? Like you can never go wrong with having guys who see the game well, make the right reads, and can handle the ball and attack the defense. You still have Cade on this team. Scoot can help you out on that front. It's not a bad thing that you have two guys that can attack the defense and get guys open looks on a play-by-play basis. Steven, I think Scoot was probably in that number two spot for a while for a lot of people. And we've seen Brandon Miller, um, you know, rise up to number two on uh, some prominent mock boards. For you, I guess, how would you maybe construe uh, the argument for Miller over Scoot? And if you can't, then what's, what just stands out about Miller on his own merits? The interesting thing, uh, Omari, about what we do at No Ceilings is that we have a big team, right? Like we have, uh, I, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but around eight people. And so we do have people that are friend, that are fans of Brandon Miller over Scoot Henderson. And there that leads to a lot of interesting discussion. Now, the thing that you can bring to the table with Brandon Miller, Miller immediately is I think he fits a positional need for the Pistons first off, right? Like they need a dynamic wing scorer. And that's what Brandon Miller looks like. You know, he's an incredible volume three-point shooter, has a good handle, good defender, good rebounder. Um He's a little bit slight of frame, but I don't think that that's always going to be the case for him. I think that he's going to fill out. He's going to get stronger, especially in a place like Motor City. He's going to have to play play physical and play hard, right? Um, but yeah, it's a wings league. That's what we keep hearing. And right now, Brandon Miller is like the, the predominant wing prospect in this year's draft class. So if Detroit fell to three, and let's say, you know, Scoot was off the board or even Brandon went off the board at number three, 
Is there anybody that you could make an argument to take over one of those guys at number three? No, I think that if it comes down to Wimby's gone and you have your pick between two or three and those two guys are on the board, it goes on my board, it goes Scoot Miller. And I think that even those that are fans of Brandon Miller still would have Scoot number three. I I think that, you know, there are guys like the Thompson twins, Whitmore. We'll talk about some more of these guys later, but at number three, it's whoever doesn't go to between Brandon Miller and Scoot Henderson, in my opinion. Okay, so Detroit falls to four then, Stephen, and you just mentioned this. You threw out a few names. They fall to four. Who is the guy? Because this is the part where I don't know that we've gotten into this a lot so far over the last few weeks into the Cam Whitmores, the Thompson Twins. I know you're going to throw one out here in a little bit. I'm really excited to talk about. But number four, who is it? The, The top guy after the three are off. Can I ask you guys a question? I'm a podcaster too, so it's in my nature to ask questions as well. Uh, How do you guys feel about Cam Whitmore as a Detroit Piston? Because he's the guy that I have number four on my board. I think Bryce is higher on him than I am, but in this draft, I I can't make a super compelling argument that he's not the fourth best guy. So I'll let let Bryce lead, lead off since I know he's pretty high on him. Yeah, I've actually grown and continue to grow on him every day. I'm actually going to dive into the film. I'm doing a series over at Draft Digest where I pick out the best game from each prospect and just go, like, what's their ceiling from their best game this past season? I just did Victor and Scoot. I'm about to do Brandon Miller and Cam Whitmore this week. Wes is the one that, like, probably three times a week, Wes will be like, Bryce, come on, Cam Whitmore, like, tell me, give me the (laughs) negative. But I'll tell you what I like, Stephen, is, He can shoot. I think I'm buying into the shot, at least as a catch-and-shoot guy. He's very explosive athlete. And where I'm really buying in is what Detroit, I think, needs is a two-way wing. It's not just a scoring wing. They need a two-way wing. And so what Cam can do defensively, or what I think he can do, I've seen flashes of, is exciting to me. So that's why I think I'm ready to move Cam to number four on my Piston-specific big board as well. A lot of the reasons that you just brought up, Bryce, is why I have him specifically for a a Pistons board at number four. There's a guy who I don't have on my Pistons board that I really love, and he's number four on my overall board, and that's Sheriff Walker. I just, I think that's a harder fit for Detroit, you know, and I know that you don't always draft for fit. You got to draft best player available, but if the best player available looks like it's going to be a rough, you know, kind of ingratiation on his part, then you might have to go somewhere else. And I don't think that Cam is too terribly far behind um, Jairus Walker in terms of talent. I actually, I think his ceiling is a a little bit higher. And I like his handle a lot too. You talked about the shooting. I think positionally his handle is pretty strong. And I think that his frame can allow him to play the three and the four. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about, you know, with City Bay being gone, but I think that he can kind of give you a little bit of what Bay gave with a little bit higher ceiling and I think more defensive intensity to what you just spoke on, Bryce. There's a lot I like about his game. I like how explosive he is, his development as a shooter. He's got the the tools to just be, I think, one of the most well-rounded wings in the entire draft. Um, I also like that he's still 18 years old. I know you're not an age yeah. guy. You know, I do buy in to, not as much as other people, I do buy in to an extent that being ahead of your the learning curve as a, a young player kind of goes to your favor. I don't know if I saw enough from Cam just as far as outside of the getting downhill shooting aspects of the game that 
you know, makes me feel comfortable with him quite at four. You know, the assist numbers were really, really bad. And, you know, I think he's probably maybe a slightly better passer than those numbers showed. But, you know, you still look at it and it's like, wow, that's <laughs> that's extremely low, right? And, you know, I, and I just think from a skill development standpoint, he kind of reminds me, you know, maybe not as a, a player, but how, how, how you're drafting him. It's like a Patrick Williams in, in, in 2020 where uh, you saw him kind of fly up boards late just because of the, the actual tools. But, you know, do you feel confident that he'll start to scratch that ceiling by the time he's 21 or 22 when you have to to pay him and I think that's where I, maybe I get a little bit more pause there when you have prospects who I think have higher floors and you know arguably just as high ceilings yeah and I think that that's fair the one thing that I would just kind of counter with Amari is that Villanova was not a very good ecosystem for a, a such a young player to come in and kind of take over a program that just kind of overhauled its entire philosophy and uh, culture you know with uh, coach Wright walking away and they didn't they didn't really have like a good lead ball handler and no offense to Brandon Slater but they didn't really have a good tail end of that defense either so I just think that it was kind of I like the idea of him if like coach Wright was still there I think that you see a way better Cam Whitmore uh, and you probably actually see a little bit better coached and uh, more talented Villanova program but it's just kind of a weird season. It's kind of similar to what the the Duke pros, prospects just went through too, where a lot of talent, a lot of um, big names on that squad, but you know, just they're they're learning a new coach at the same time that they're trying to come in and be a, an NBA player in, in one season. And I look at Durant too, who you mentioned earlier. Just the team could not really maximize that that skill set. And you see a window too where you just put Cam Whitmore. I mean, you put him on the Pistons, right? You have playmaking already. You have Cade. You have Ivy. Uh, you know, you've got you've got bigs underneath. And I think on paper you can see a, a scenario where you know he's attacking open lanes. You know, when he's getting downhill, he's getting open shots, and maybe some of the passing gets brought out of him naturally. So I see the upside. I just see the red flags too. And it's like, you know, I, I think you kind of have to sell me on for a little bit, but I think in this draft, absolutely. He's a top six, seven guy. Yeah. And you mentioned his to Sadiq Bay. I think that's where a lot of people are going to go is the Villanova thing. They're built kind of, but Cam shoots it. Probably he didn't shoot it as good as Sadiq did in college, I guess. So maybe you give Sadiq the shooting, but I think Cam can shoot it as good as what we've seen from Sadiq in the NBA. Cam is a way better athlete than Sadiq Bey. Way better getting to the rim. And I think has way better defensive upside. So I know people are going to immediately push back. Oh, well, if he's, I think Cam can, they're different players. I think Cam Whitmore can be what a lot of people thought Sadiq Bey was going to be in his rookie season when they were talking a number two, a number three option. And no shade at Sadiq Bey because he just had a really great playoff game in a win for the Atlanta Hawks, but in a role off the bench, which is what he's best suited for. So I think that should be distinguished is, yeah, there's some similarities, but Cam's upside, his real ceiling is what a lot of people thought Sadiq Bey's ceiling was going to be and Stephen I'll give you a chance to respond to that we're going to go to a short break and then we come back if Stephen wants to respond to that and then also we'll dive into a couple other guys you may have in this four or five range on a piston specific big board all right we are back with segment two and you know, we're going to pick up where we 
left off here, um, you know, in the segment one before we dive into the rest of the lottery. Uh, you know, I guess outside of Kim Whitmore, you look at, at those four or five spots who are the guys who kind of rise to the top for you, Stephen. The fifth player on my big board is a guy that is rising up for a lot of people. And if he went fifth overall, I think it would shock a lot of folks. But I think that for the Pistons specifically, it makes a lot of sense. And I actually had a chance to watch this young man play live and interview him. And he's got the one of the best kind of personalities in a player that you could ever want. And that's Taylor Hendricks. I think that him coming in, being able to play the four right off the jump. Uh, there's a little bit, Bryce, you've seen it. Omar, you've probably seen it too, that does, is he a four that can play the three? Is he a four that can play the five? Is he strictly at the four? There's a whole lot of discussion on that. And a lot of that has to do with his frame. He's going to get stronger, but he's got the frame that can support a little bit more functional strength. He's at about six foot nine. Uh, entry level skill set looks like a 40% three point shooter and a heck of a weak side rim protector playing along Jalen Duran long term. I think that that's a tremendous fit for the Pistons. It fills out your front court. And depending on what the coaching staff wants to do with him, I think that he's a very malleable player to where you could see him play some three a la Larry Marketing when he was with the Cleveland Cavaliers, or you can see him play the four. That's the beautiful thing about him and what the league is kind of going in, what I'm calling like, you guys would appreciate this, a modernized Twin Towers lineup, right? Where you have, you can play multiple bigs on the floor so long as they kind of meet the modern NBA game with floor spacing, rim protection, things of that nature. Omari, I saw you light up a little bit there whenever Steven brought up Taylor Hendricks. This is a, you're a fan of Hendricks game? Yeah, no, I think when I did my first mock draft for the Pistons like six weeks ago, I wrote that, you know, so I said it done, he's probably going to be closer to, to the top five than uh, being outside of the lottery. And, uh, you know, I thought that would maybe come closer to, you know, the, the the combine. He just seems like the type of guy who authentically will pop off and, you know, just really shine once you put him into an open uh, gym. But you just look at his skill set, like he kind of reminds me of Jeremy Grant, you know, just being, you know, like a really long kind of rangy, um, you know, defender who can knock down threes. And I don't know if he's as good with the ball in his hands as Jeremy is at this point, but just, you know, you just look at what he's been able to do, you know, at that level, how efficient he was, um, you know, not playing maybe the best competition, but, you know, you certainly want to see a guy dominate, you know, lower college competition. And I think he he did that. And his game, I mean, I think he's just built for the NBA. Uh, you know, you could probably play him in the three of some lineups, five of some lineups, but he's probably more of a, a, a natural four. And, you know, I just kind of see him as like, you know, maybe a Jeremy Grant or, you know, like a, a John Collins, like one of those guys who, you know, maybe doesn't have quite a pure position, but, uh, you know, just connect things happen defensively, knock down threes, good athlete. You know, I just don't see a, a, a scenario where um, he doesn't become a pretty good NBA starter at some point. Like, I'm just really biased to his upside. Steven, I got to ask you, because we saw a guy go in the top three last year that has a similar profile in Jabari Smith Jr. Yeah. Kind of this four-man, rangy, shooter, versatile defender. I think Jabari Smith Jr.'s defensive upside was more with what he could do on ball, and maybe Taylor Hendricks is more with his off-ball blocking shots, those type of things. Obviously, Jabari Smith Jr.'s shooting was just insane. Can just I'm not saying it's a one-to-one comp at all. Like I'm not, but like there's a similar profile there. So to give people a visual or an understanding, like how would you compare that games? Or am I way off base? It, it, maybe there isn't a comparison between those two. I think that you can make a comparison. Um, Jabari, though, I would say is was actually more mature in the post. 
a little bit with some of his moves. I think that his shot was a lot quicker uh, than, than what Taylor's is as well. But they both offer a lot of the same things where Taylor is a, a good weak side rim protector and a good three-point shooter. I think that there is similarities in that aspect. But I just think that Jabari was a little bit better with the ball in his hands. And Amari, when I was – I interviewed uh, Taylor after a game against um, ECU, East, East Carolina – and afterwards, I, w- I-, I talked to him about how his skill set has just like grown over the season and what did he think that he needed to work on next. And his answer was exactly what I wanted to hear. And that was his ball handling. So I think that in a comparison with, uh, you know, Grant, I think that that's pretty apt. Uh, and he's working on improving that ball handling to make him more of a versatile player. So we've talked to top of the draft. I know there's some other guys we could have got into. We could have talked Jarris yeah. Walker. The, and we, we could spend the whole episode top talking top five, top ten. But we brought you in because you are, and, and you will take this in the best way because you're the you're a sicko when it comes to this stuff. So true sickos, they talk the second round. They talk undrafted free agents. So we're going to spend the second half of this rounding out the Pistons roster, right? Because we know it's more than just the top end. They have pick 31, which I think is really interesting in this draft draft because the draft kind of goes crazy in this range so let's lead off and start with this Steven as man guys I gotta let you know this man has like pages of notes he's flipping through which I'm sorry I'm prepared no no that's what I love I wanted to mention as a total compliment that you've written all these notes down I love it so pick 31 Steven absolute home run like, let's play in a realistic world. Obviously, it can't be like, you know, Taylor Hendricks falls to 31 or something. But in, in a realistic world, who is the home run pick for Detroit at 31? A guy who could maybe be there and would really fit into this roster. So I like a number of guys at 31. And I, I work in groups of five. So I'm just going to give you five players that I really like. Number one is Marcus Sasser out of Houston. I think that as a backup guard, uh, he he offers a lot. You know, he's another one of these undersized guys at about six foot two, um, but he's a winner, man. Like he will, he already hits NBA range three point shots. Which if you're that undersized guy, you got to be physically strong. He meets that mark and he spaces the floor incredibly well. He's not the best, uh, I would say, like floor bender with the ball in his hand, but he is a capable playmaker as well, and he is a tenacious point of attack defender. The next guy. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm only going to give you four names, not five. Uh, Bobby Clinton out of Wake Forest. Um, I, I love Bobby. Um, I've actually had a chance to interview him. And if you look at his numbers just right off the jump, they're not going to grab you as a player that's like, why are you so high on this guy? But if you look at him, he's six foot 10, uh, shoots 40% from the three point line. He's a good shot blocker, he's a good passer. And he's functional with the ball in his hands. And he's playing into a frame that he's recently just like experienced a, uh, a growth spurt. And he's just recently put on weight. So if you kind of extrapolate his skill set compared to him growing into his frame at his age, I think that if this guy hits, he's going to make a lot of teams look silly if he falls to number 31. The next guy that I have is Rayon Rupert out of New Zealand. He's a little bit of a project, so I don't know if Detroit wants to invest in him, but I think that the defensive versatility that he brings can play the three or the four defensively and has a little bit of handle, but the three-point shot just isn't where it needs to be. And then somehow, guys, if Dariq Whitehead falls to 31 outside the first round, I think that Detroit definitely takes a swing on a guy who came into the season 
projected as like a top 10 talent. But with injury concern with the way that Duke played, a lot of Duke guys are running it back this year. So I don't know how that speaks to how NBA teams would look at Dariq uh, coming into this season. But if he falls to 31, I think that you guys would be doing backflips landing him. I'm glad you mentioned Dariq Wyatt because I think this draft to me has a lot of guys, uh, you know, like maybe there's two ways you can get to classify a draft. This draft has a lot of uh, day one extension players. This draft has a lot of restricted free agency guys. To me, he's a player who may not pop till year three or four, but when he pops, like it's really going to click for him um, pretty rapidly. Uh, you know, all all the names you you, you mentioned seem like Nashville fits at thirty one. Uh, you know, I think I think Bryce is probably a lot more knowledgeable about this part of the draft than I am, to be clear. But you know, I guess even when you look at at, at this draft, is it unique to you in any sense that there are just so many players who uh, kind of had incomplete uh, resumes in in college, but you know, do you see a big gap between 31 and maybe like 15 compared to your average draft? To your average draft, I would say once I get to about 20, I could be talked into probably like 15, 20 dudes in the back half of the draft. Um, but at 15, I think that you start seeing a distinct fall off. But there's a lot of value that you guys could get at pick 31 if you wanted to stay there, right? Like if you just look at the last five draft picks at 31, it doesn't matter if it's a strong draft or a bad one. Like if you... Guys who are available at 31. Last year, we had Andrew Nemhart, who looks like he's going to be an all-NBA rookie player, right? Um, Jeremiah Robinson Earl, the year before, was picked at 32 and has been a valuable contributor to Oklahoma City Thunder. You know, Xavier Tillman was available at 35, and we're seeing what he's doing in the playoffs right now. Nick Claxton in 2019 was actually the 31st pick. And then in 2018, Jalen Brunson was taken at 33. So it doesn't matter really what draft it is what class it is. It seems like at around that 31 spot that there's always going to be someone available. So if you're, if your Detroit Pistons are doing their homework and listening to the drafts up that Bryce is putting out, you know, they're going to be able to, to land a solid guy at 31, no matter how we perceive the strength of this class. So one thing I think the Pistons can really look to get at 31 is a defending versatile wing. Now, again, if they have yeah. already drafted Brandon Miller, if they've already drafted Cam Whitmore, maybe that changes a little bit. You know, Clintman is a little, I know you said Bobby Clintman 6'10". I've actually done work on Clintman. And so I, like, he is more of a wingy player. You know, maybe he's a four, but like, he he fits into that. Ryan Repair definitely fits into that, as you mentioned, kind of the defensive versatility. Dariq, you know, a little bit. But what are, who are some other names? Like, let's just say, let's say the Pistons pinpoint, we need to overhaul this wing position. Boyan's there, but Boyan's, you know, barely guaranteed for the year after this next is getting a little bit older. Let's say they draft Victor, you know, they get number one and draft Victor and he's more of a four or five. Who is a wing at 31, even if it's just a backup that, you know, maybe offers the three and D, but more so than anything, that defensive versatility? I, I think uh, City Sissoko, if he's available at 31, is another player out of the G League Ignite. I mean, obviously, Scoot Henderson kind of dominated the headlines for that team. And then we even started seeing Leonard Miller come in to his own a little bit. But City was kind of always the guy who defensively had been there all throughout the season offensively he kind of came into his own at the latter part of the year and uh, really grew as a playmaker I kind of like him as a four a little bit but there are people that like him at the three I think that Julian Strother might be a guy that's available out of Gonzaga who he reminds me a lot of uh, Jordan Wara who's playing for the Pacers right now because he is a great three-point shooter can rebound 
a little bit of question mark on the defensive end. But at 31, if you just want a guy who can come in and be a spot-up three-point shooter, compete on the glass and run the floor, I think that he's a guy that could be there. And then you have Chris Murray, who in my eyes is more of a four, but he could probably give you minutes at the three as well. Just another guy who is positionally versatile, played at the five a lot for Iowa, but I think that if he plays a lot on the wing, he's a great spot-up shooter. He kind of showed you that playing alongside Keegan last year that he can give you minutes at the three and be pretty versatile. So those would be three guys that I would keep an eye on at 31 kind of defensive-minded wings that might be available around that range. Steven, I was going to ask you about Chris Murray. You know, I know the, the Pistons liked uh, Keegan last year, and, you know, of course the Kings uh, souped him up, and you know, leaving Ivy at five for Detroit. But how does Chris compare to, to Keegan's game uh, for you? Do you see them as pretty similar or identical players with similar trajectories? Or, you know, how exactly, you know, do you kind of contrast their games and how they'll fit? at the next level so chris i think is more naturally an off-ball guy um i i that's how i feel because when we saw chris and keegan play together keegan was much more adept to to make plays with the ball in his hands i kind of liken him a little bit to like an al harrington type of player who can do a little bit of everything with the ball in his hands and space the floor and he kind of showed you that already this year in sacramento chris is more of an off-ball guy who can switch a little bit defensively I just don't think that he has uh, as much on-ball equity as what we saw from Keegan um, at Iowa. And that really kind of limits him. I think that, you know, you guys would agree with this. Sometimes the best role players were stars before because they know what their star is expecting from them. And because they have experienced all over the court doing a little bit of everything, that helps them be able to see the floor better and helps them to be able to kind of channel that, like, concentrated energy into one thing. Chris kind of worries me a little bit because he didn't really have all of that in his game at Iowa, but I think that he can space the floor and and defend a couple positions pretty well. I want to go back to Marcus Sasser, Stephen, because okay. you draft a little guard um, at 31, obviously not to start, but you bring in a guy like that, and a lot of the Killian Hayes fans are going to be like, oh, Stephen came on the Pistons' Bulls to replace Killian Hayes. So my question is, because you mentioned Marcus isn't necessarily a guy that's going to break down the defense a ton. That's not necessarily his strong suit. So at 6'2", could you play him next to Killian Hayes? Can he be like a small off guard next to a 6'5", Killian Hayes, and you can survive with that height in the backcourt? Or do you think Sasser needs to be kind of essentially your primary ball handler coming off the bench and, and even more than that can he play next to a Cade Cunningham in some different lineups like what what is kind of his role I guess because I'm intrigued by Marcus Sasser as well especially because of like you mentioned the way to shoot the ball yeah and I think that what we see in the NBA Bryce and Amari you see this too is that these jumbo initiators like a Cade Cunningham what makes them successful is they have floor spacing around them and that's what Marcus Sasser brings to this team in spades he can do it with the ball in his hand he can do it off of the catch and I think even if you want to take, you know, play him alongside uh, Killian, you still can because he opens the floor. He he makes it more. Um, he gives he gives Killian more lanes to attack with the ball in his hands and set up uh, other guys around him. You can never go wrong with having fuller spacing, especially when he can guard probably two positions pretty well. I would trust him more on ones um, in his rookie year, but I think as you know, he gets more. I'm familiar with the NBA game. He could probably guard either backcourt spot. 
So are we looking at like a Davion Mitchell-ish kind of arc, like, but a better shooter? I mean, uh, I would hope that we're projecting a better shooter than what Davion's done in the NBA. Maybe not quite as good defensively, but is that kind of what we're looking at, the archetype of player with Sasser? I think a Monty, Monty Morris out of Washington okay. would be a good comparison, someone who can uh, do a little bit of everything depending on who's on the floor. He's very much like a chameleon, right? Like if he's on the floor with Jokic, he's spacing the floor. But if there's no one else on the floor, you can expect him to do more with the ball in his hand. I think that that would be kind of the player type that I would envision, you know, Marcus Sasser being. This late in the draft, I mean, I think at the top of the lottery, uh, you know, you talk a lot about just like best fit. You know, at, at 31, I guess, where do you fall as far as, you know, just finding players who could fit Exact roles. Is that probably more of an expectation when you get that late that you just want a guy who could fit into your, your system maybe more so than, than just uh, maybe like vague upside? Like I think about a guy like Imani Bates, who I don't even think has de- declared yet. He probably will by the time this episode comes out. But uh, kind of where do you fall on that spectrum when you evaluate, you know, players that late in the draft yeah i think that you kind of want to look more for upside in the first round but again i hate i'm i'm a very boring dude at no ceilings because i i kind of rationalize things a lot it really depends on what your team is looking for so for detroit i would say that you guys probably take more of an upside swing um at the beginning of the at the beginning of the draft depending on where you guys fall And then at the second round, just get you a grown-up who can come in and play, right? Like, I think that you just come in and get you a roster spot nailed down, someone who you can trust to be like the seventh, eighth, ninth man on the rotation um, at 31. And like I said, there's going to, because of everybody wanting to take home run swings, naturally there's going to be kind of instant impact players available to you at that 31 spot. And that's why I like Marcus Sasser a lot, um, to kind of head that like grouping of players that I had. But I think, too, that like guys like uh, I mentioned Julian Strother, Leonard Miller, Trey Alexander out of Creighton would kind of be another really good guy who can play on and off the ball. He's six foot four, uh, a heck of a defender and a good three point shooter. And then Julian Phillips, if you want to get kind of projecty out of Tennessee, who in his freshman year at Tennessee kind of reminds me a lot of Tari Eason and how he played at Cincinnati before he transferred over to LSU. So if you're kind of patient and allow him to grow in your G League, you could be looking at a guy similar to Tari Eason as long as that three-point shot comes around. All right, we got to go to another break, but we're getting into all these names. I love it. So Amari brought up Amani Bates, and I know the listeners, at least some are going to want to hear you dive into him a little bit more. So there's Amani, there's Kobe Bufkin, a Michigan guy. We got to talk about some of these guys. So we're going to go to a break. When we come back, we'll dive into those guys, some more names, some undrafted, some real sleepers that you may have on your list. And we'll keep Steven talking Detroit Pistons second round draft after this. All right, we're back with our third segment. And so I was like, we're going to get into some of the, the, the local guys uh, that, you know, I know a lot of you know Detroit fans here are familiar with Michigan, have some good prospects. Michigan State has some intriguing guys. Uh, we're going to lead off with uh, Eastern Michigan's own Imani Bates, who, you know, of course, you know, I think saying his trajectory over the last few years as seesawed is probably putting it lightly right. Uh, but you just look at, what he did produce uh, in his non season at, at Eastern, I guess. How do you, as a draft evaluator, sort of kind of sort through maybe all of the, I guess, mess, you know, for a player like that? You know, I mean, he goes from, you know, a higher competition level to a lower one. You know, he's 
excelled at some things or some other things where you're like, he's going to have to work on that. Uh, what's your overall Imani Bates, uh, you know, report card uh, as he enters, potentially enters this phase of his career? Omari, oh, it's, it's really funny because I don't knock a dude just for stepping down a level of competition. Like Brandon Pajemski was a four-star recruit, uh, play, went to go play at Illinois, played like five minutes a game in 16 contests, was like, no, I'm not about this. I'm going to go play at Santa Clara. And now he looks like a real potential NBA player. So the fact that Amani transferred down really doesn't bother me. It's the fact that he does so much with the ball in his hand and there are there's such little talent around him that it's kind of like an incomplete grade, you know, going back to your report guard analogy to where I don't really know what to make of it because he is not going to be a guy that you're drafting to come in and be like that volume scorer. So how does he play off of others? If he's not going to be this microwave scorer, how does he compete defensively? How does he attack the glass? You know, how strong is he? I think is another kind of thing that we're kind of worried about him a little bit. I think that he is worth potentially being taken in the second round, depending on who declares uh, himself included. He hasn't made his intentions known as you said to date, but it's really difficult. It's a hard, it's a hard, um, it's a hard grade to give somebody because I don't really know like how we're supposed to take the, the Eastern Michigan film and project that in an NBA setting moving forward. So I have him out. Actually, I have him outside my top 60 right now, but I could see a team taking a swing on him and I'm not too picky. Like if you got a, if you have a guy in the second round that you like, then take your guy. You know what I mean? I'm not going to beat somebody up. I just personally wouldn't invest draft capital in him. And that was going to be my follow-up where he is on your board. You know, I guess it's that, are those just reasons why you have him outside of your board? It's just, do you buy into him, you know, being a decent, effective, maybe NBA shooter? Or do you just simply just see a lot more guys who, to you, seem like safer prospects? There's a lot of guys in this class that have size and that can sprint and that can shoot the ball. Like, that that probably hurts his draft stock a lot. It's just that there's already guys that can do the thing that he's best at right now. And they don't come with as many question marks around the rest of their game. So that's why I have him outside my top 60 right now. But again, we're talking about a guy and this is something I'm going to hop on a soapbox a little bit. My timeline is full of Cooper flag and and boozer conversations right now. And they're not going to get drafted for another two, three years. And it wasn't that long ago that Amani Bates was all over everybody's timeline and everything like that. So these guys aren't as sure of things as sometimes this is what we make them out to be. But if you want to take a guy in the second round that had a lot of, you know, prospects coming in to his class thing and like this guy could be a top three pick, then you could do a heck of a lot worse. Like that's not a bad philosophy to bank on at any part in the draft, let alone the second round. I want to ask this, and this can be like kind of a bigger draft analyst because I know I run into this a little bit. I think the hard thing with Amani is to answer the question, it goes beyond what we can evaluate on the floor, right? Because with Amani, if we knew, if we could sit down with him, look him in the eyes and hear his questions and be around him and know whether he's willing to accept the role that he needs to accept to succeed at the next level, I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I think we could project him and he'd be higher on the big board. I think the question or what makes it hard is, 
I don't know that I believe that Imani Bates is willing to accept that role because you said it perfectly. He's not this jumbo creator, nuclear score with the ball in his hands. Or I don't think an NBA team is going to allow him to do that. They're not going to give him that role day one. So is he willing to do all the other things? He very well may be able to do that, Stephen. He very well may be willing to do that. We just have no idea what the answer to that question is. Do you agree with that? And, and I would say maybe bigger picture is that one of the things, maybe there's other scenarios where as evaluators, like, man, I wish I could talk to this guy. As you mentioned, you've got to talk to Taylor Hendricks and some other guys. And that probably made your evaluation of them specifically a little bit easier. Yeah, because I mean, you guys know this, you're not drafting basketball prospects, right? You're drafting people first, you know, and, and you sound thing. just like Troy Weaver, man. Troy Weaver, <laughs> if he listens to the Fist and Fulls, is going to eat that up because that is direct quote from him. I love it. Well, I mean, and it's he says it because it's true, right? Like, Amani, I'm not saying that he is like a bad dude or anything like that. But when you don't hear from a player, right, you're not giving that reassurance, that warm, fuzzy feeling that after he de- after he leaves Memphis and leaves a program that put the ball in his hand that wanted him to be a point guard maybe that was like to his detriment but Memphis was willing to when he wasn't hurt say here's the ball go cook you know and then he wasn't able to do that at that level of competition then he transfers down Eastern Michigan who's coached by Stan Heath former Arkansas Razorback coach gave him every opportunity and in lower level competition uh, on his team and and against other teams was able to do more with the ball in his hand, just wasn't very efficient. So it's like, okay, if you're going to be this volume scorer, you're not going to be efficient, then what's the upside of that? You know what I mean? So and if we're not hearing from him as much and there's this much uncertainty surrounding his game, that doesn't really give me the 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 type of warm fuzzy that I'm looking for when I'm investing draft capital into a player. Let's pivot a little bit to Michigan, uh, who I think, you know, my, my matter is Michigan State, but, you know, for the purpose of the draft, I think Michigan's probably got, you know, a few more compelling guys. Uh, Kobe Bufkin, you know, to me is one of the more intriguing names in, in the draft. Um, you know, I think you look at his shooting and maybe the three-point shot uh, percentage wasn't as high as you would want, but really good at the line, really good everywhere else. He's young. Uh, where's Kobe Bufkin, you know, in your in your draft range, and how do you sort of weigh him against the other guard prospects in this draft? So I kind of have him in the late teens, early 20s, but I'm one of these guys that no ceilings that's probably a little bit lower on him compared to everybody else. I, I know that there's guys that like him close to the top 10 range, you know, and what makes this draft hard is that, there are a lot of kind of point guards at the at the top of this class too. I mean, outside of Scoot, you got Amin Thompson, and then you start getting to your Case and Wallace's, your Jalen Hood Shafinos, who I'm really high on, Anthony Black. Uh, Nick Smith Jr. was a guy who was supposed to be at the top of this class, and because of injuries and s- situation, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. And then you have risers in this class too. So I, I'm lower on him compared to most other people, but – I still have him in a very favorable range, I feel like, to where if you like Kobe Bufkin, I could understand you taking him a little higher. But he is a very mature player. Although he's a sophomore, he's still very young. He's younger than a lot of freshmen in this class. And guys who can get to their spots easily uh, typically succeed at some degree in the NBA. And that's why I like Jalen Hushafino a lot. Kobe Bufkin has a lot of similarities, just a little bit smaller than Jalen Hutchifino, which is why I have JHS a little bit higher. What about Bufkin's defense? Because here's what's surprising. A lot of Michigan fans that 
that I don't talk a lot of college basketball on the timeline, but I threw out Kobe Bufkin as a draft pick 2023. And a lot of Michigan fans push back against me. Like, no, he's not. He's a draft pick in 2024. So I think a lot of Michigan fans well, want right to hold now, on to him longer. Yeah, well, Bryce. And, yeah. But I, I think there is also a little bit, they didn't think he was good enough. And so can you kind of give the Kobe Bufkin NBA draft prospect 2023 pitch in general? But what I see is I think he's good defensively. He's long. He's range. He plays with his chest. He has super active hands. He can be a, a playmaker, a defensive playmaker. I, I he is small. He's got to get stronger. There's there's no doubt. There's some projection here. But can you give kind of the overall Kobe Bufkin kind of scouting report? You know, as Amari said earlier, just for some Michigan fans who I don't know that they truly see it. I think because they watch Michigan, they weren't as successful as what they wanted. And they're like, he wasn't even the best player on the team. Obviously, it was Hunter Dickinson, Jet Howard's getting lottery buzz. And it's like, all of a sudden now, Bufkin's in this and leaving when they thought he was a surefire guy to come back. Well, so what I like about a prospect um, is when they can make in-season improvements, right? Like, it's one thing just to say, okay, this is your point A. What does your point B look like? When you're starting to kind of fill that, that those segments in, in the season. I love that a lot. That's why I liked Tari Easton so much last year was because he made those incremental improvements over the season. And that's why Kobe Bufkin has risen up everybody's board is because he went from just being kind of like a bystander to being more active. When we started seeing injuries and things like that to Jet Howard, it was one thing for Hunter Dickinson to kind of be the offensive hub, but you need some perimeter assistance. When Jet Howard started getting hurt, Michigan turned to Kobe Bufkin and he was able to succeed, you know, having that kind of cerebral approach offensively. And then Bryce, I didn't mention it earlier. I'm glad you touched on that defenses there too. So you have a complete basketball player who is very intelligent, who is growing as a three-point shooter and has shown that he can play off of uh, a creating big man like Hunter Dickinson. He can play off of a creating wing who can shoot the lights off, you know, the lights out in, in Jet Howard. And he has also shown that he can, run the offense and initiate it. So there's three separate player types that he is e- that he is either shown that he can be or play alongside. And that versatility makes him very attractive to NBA front offices. When you look at Michigan State, uh, you know, I know Jaden Atkins is testing the NBA draft process, but this seems more like a, you know, uh, Izzo kind of seems like he pivots between years where he's got lottery guys and then he has years where, you know, maybe you have a couple second round guys at, at best, but have you dove into that roster at all now? Are there any players who kind of jump out as players who could maybe at least go the draft or free agent route? Um, so Jay Nakins, I think, is just doing a very intelligent thing by getting NBA feedback, and it's probably going to come back. Uh, this is not Intel, so aggregators, please don't aggregate. But I just think that this is a uh, this is a, a smart move on his part, just to say, okay, I, like I was pretty decent as a freshman, a sophomore with more usage and. Um, more responsibility. I feel like I've improved. Let me go get some NBA front office feedback. I could come back and work on what they want to see me work on and then see what I look like as a junior. Um, but I actually liked A.J. Hogard as a as a prospect a lot out of Michigan State. Now, he's one of these like ultimate, if he shoots it, he looks completely different. Um, but the playmaking is there. The defense is there. He's very strong, very versatile. I like the way that he can kind of snake his way into the paint finished through contact. Defensively, he's fine. He competes on the glass. He just really needs to work on a three-point shot, which is why I think that he's really not even entertaining uh, testing the waters as of right now. But there's a couple of guys that I really liked on that team with Jay Nakins. I, I liked him a lot coming into the season, waned on him throughout the process, and I 
AJ Hogard has always been just a guy that I'm like very fascinated with and is a very fun watch. So as we get into the weeds a little bit, undrafted free agent guys, maybe guys that don't let let's let's go fully into it, Steven, because I said this is why this is where this is what you do. So you know, the Pistons select one through five. The Pistons select 31, and, and there's going to be a lot of conversation about those guys. But there's going to be some undrafted free agents. There's going to be some G League guys. Give us some names that if Detroit were to bring these guys on the roster, that there's a real reason to be excited about it. And maybe it's guys that are for sure undrafted free. Maybe it's a guy in your top 60 who you're like, I don't think the NBA's you know valuing this guy as much as they should, and they're probably going to end up being an undrafted free agent. But we've seen you know Austin Reeves has taken the Lakers by storm, you know, and the NBA by storm. And so, who who's uh, some of those sleeper names that Pistons fans could could look for and possibly be excited about if Troy Weaver pinpoints their names as well? And I think real quick before we even get into the names, the the thing to keep in mind about undrafted guys and how we project them is that we need to remember that these agents are going to say, "No, I prefer." to be undrafted so I can like Austin Reeves, for example, so, so I could pick my team. Pistons fans know this very, very uh, realistically. So, right. They can, they can pick their team and they can get to their bag quicker. Right. Jalen Slauson is a guy who out of Furman, who I think would be a heck of a piece um, for Detroit. If he doesn't get drafted, if he goes that kind of Austin Reeves route, because he, for a very small school in Furman out of South Carolina, he was able to, be the best defender on the floor almost on a nightly basis, no matter who he was playing against, competes on the glass, passes the ball very, very well, sees the floor very, very well, and he has improved as a three-point shooter this season. So with the floor spacing that he's now exhibiting, I have him, Bryce, kind of like what you just said. I have him in my top 60, but there's a world where he does not get drafted. you know. And if he's an undrafted free agent, Detroit would do very well to go in and, and get this guy because I think in a second unit um, being one of these like lower end of the rotational guys, he's just a guy that's not going to embarrass himself on the floor. My co-host Maxwell Baumbach always says that sometimes you just, you have to be one of these players that coaches can trust and you're not going to embarrass yourself defensively. Jalen Slauson will not get embarrassed defensively and he brings enough offensive uh, tools in his tool belt to where he can contribute on an NBA team, in my opinion. Steven, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to go a little bit more broadly, um, you know, talking about the draft as a whole. Where would you rank this draft just kind of going in, you know, maybe compared to the last four or five? Because I think whenever you have a draft like this, I've compared this to the 2019 draft. Uh, you have, you know, a guy at the top who's very clearly number one. You have a number two guard. Uh, you know, I think you could kind of see some shades of Ja and Scoot. And then you have a wing that's like on number three. Oh, okay. I think it could be this for those that are watching. I think that this could be on par with the 1996 NBA draft, too. Very top heavy. I think that the star power in this class could rival that. I'm not saying that it will, but there's a lot of star power at the top of this draft. There's a lot of depth in this class that I think that because a lot of draft people will talk draft for nine months and then by the end we're burnt out, right? Like, we're, we're just done with it. And we say, yeah, this class isn't this, this class isn't that. I think that this class could rival the 96 class, the 03 class, the 84 class. Like, it could be an all-timer with guys like Victor Wembanyama, Scoot Henderson, Brandon Miller. If one, if one of the Thompson twins hit their absolute best ceiling, you know, Jarris Walker is in there. Uh, Cam Whitmore is in there. These are dudes that could come in and if it, if – 
five or six dudes hit their ceilings, we're looking at an all-time class. That's how I feel about it. I'm glad I asked that. Yeah, I like that you had the 96 um, draft yeah. poster just ready made. Like that looks scripted, but it wasn't scripted. No, I have it. I have it hanging up in the wall um, right underneath uh, one of my buddy Corey Tolliba's uh, Hardwood Herald magazines that he used to put out back in the day before No Ceilings was a thing. Yeah, I love basketball. Uh, like Bryce said, I am a sicko. That 96 class is just uh, an all timer. Yeah, some of the best moments on the podcast are the unscripted ones. And I, I know we didn't have that anywhere on the outline. And this is why Omari is the best, man. Like, this is what he does for a living, right? He asks questions. He asks the best questions. And uh, it le- unfortunately, we're not on YouTube yet every episode, but it's coming soon. Um, we'll, we'll knock that out. Steven, thank you so much. I know we have 50 more prospects we could talk about, <laughs> um, but we're going to have to shut it down here. We appreciate you coming on. Before we let you go, you guys are blowing up at No Ceilings, and it's because of the hard work that you do that everybody over there does. So first, let everybody know where they can find you and everything you're doing, and then let everybody know No Ceilings as a whole. Where they, You guys are putting out – you guys are in my queue, guys. If, if you're listening to this, I listen to podcasts. No Ceilings is in my queue. I'm, I'm tuning in. You guys are putting out daily content. And so um, let everybody know where they can find all of that, Steven. Yeah, well, first off, fellas, I just it it means a lot to me that you guys reached out and wanted to have me on the show. Um, Love all the work that you guys are doing. So just thank you so much for having me on. If you want to follow me, I'm most active on Twitter at Steven G Hoops. That's Steven with the P-H, the letter G and then Hoops. Um, And then all my written work is on NoSeelingsNBA.com. I'm going to have a piece. Probably by the time this is out, um, Zach Eady is a prospect that I'm covering uh, for for my Monday article, and that's going to be live over there. Uh, but for anything that any of us are doing at No Ceilings, you know, we interview prospects all the time. We're breaking down film with them. We're writing pieces. We're writing articles, written interviews. We just did a live mock draft with like almost all of our entire No Ceilings team on our YouTube channel. That's No Ceilings TV. Um, we're active on Twitter all the time at No Ceilings NBA, any social media, No Ceilings NBA. And then the podcast, we have five shows that come out throughout the week under one feed. That's No Ceilings NBA, anywhere that you get your podcasts. And, you know, we we try to do what you guys at Draft Digest are doing, Bryce, where we try to give you guys extremely comprehensive uh, prospect breakdowns. Anything draft related that you want, we try to bring to you. And all of that's absolutely free. Um, just go subscribe over at NoSeilingsNBA.com and uh, listen to our podcast. And it means, means a lot to us, man. But again, fellas, thank you guys so much for having me. No Ceilings is one of the best draft resources out there. So if you enjoyed this episode, you know, check out Steven's work, check out No Ceilings. And they have a lot more of that. You know, obviously, I have a lot of deep respect for the work you guys put in, uh, you know, following so many guys. You know, I always like when we do draft episodes because it's just, I'm going to step back and let y'all cook. <laughs> I asked the broad overview, Pistons focused stuff, you know, that you guys had all the uh, the prospects, the analysis there. So, Stephen, thank you so much. Uh, this was excellent. And I'll go ahead and close this out. Um, so, thanks. Big thanks to our audio producer, as always, Robin Chan, our executive producer, Anjanette Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirkland Crawford. Also, shout out to our producer, Wes Davenport, and we'll talk to you all next week. 